2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nikazi Oates, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Timothy D. Walker about his new edited volume, Sailing to Freedom, Maritime Dimensions of the Underground Railroad. He is the professor of history at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Timothy Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: I'm so excited to have this conversation with you.
1: I am as well. Thanks.
2: So to begin, Tim, I want to just ask you to just tell a bit about yourself. Perhaps we can begin with you telling us about your research interest.
1: Well, um, I I should start by saying that um, I'm a Midwesterner, and so I don't naturally come to maritime things, but uh, it's kind of a result of what I decided to study when I um, undertook to become a, a teacher of history at the university level. So I moved to Boston for graduate school, and I started a program of uh, early modern European history uh, and Atlantic world, and it it occurred to me that if I was going to Really understand sort of organically and uh, and 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 clearly what it meant to be um, one of the historical actors in a maritime overseas empire. I needed to know something about maritime history and about sailing. Uh, and so I, um, in very early in my graduate career, during the summer, I uh, signed aboard as a crew member for large sailing vessels out of Mystic, Connecticut, and Mystic Seaport. And I started working on those vessels on and off uh, over the next 15 or so years, eventually teaching on board some of them, teaching courses in maritime history on large traditionally rigged vessels. And so I gained a kind of insight into, uh, into sailing and long-distance, you know, moving of cargo and, and people by water uh, in the early modern age of sail era. Uh, and that really helped to inform a lot of my um, my academic work. So my main academic interests have to do with uh, early modern Europe and its connections to the Americas through colonial uh, uh, links, having to do with you know things like the transatlantic slave trade and uh, movement of commodities and peoples and immigration uh, and labor. Um, and uh, my main focus of um, of academic research has to do with the Portuguese and the Portuguese overseas empire. But it turned out that, you know, I got a job uh, at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and because I had crewed on a large schooner that was based in New Bedford, I decided I wanted to live in this historic seaport town. And so I moved to New Bedford to uh, to be close to my my job. and and it's at that point that I really became fascinated in the local history. And it turns out that New Bedford was uh, not only part of the Maritime Underground Railroad, but an important uh, terminus for people who were escaping enslavement, fleeing to freedom. Uh, They often ended up in New Bedford because it was a particularly welcoming environment for them. Wow.
2: I am like struck by how, you know, when you began your uh, graduate studies, that you actually did not intend to um, or Enslavement wasn't a area of inquiry for you, but when you um, became a teacher, when you became an educator, a professor, it really led you down to this path and you were teaching um, about sailing and, and whatnot. That's really fascinating.
1: Well the, the, the study of, um, of slave trading by water is a necessary component when you when you deal with any overseas Empire, particularly the Portuguese or the Dutch, but it was never um, a real close focus uh, until um, until a bit later in my in my academic career. But but uh, consequently, I've published a number of works, um, journal articles, and so on, dealing with the Portuguese and their practices and the end of um, the the abolition of slavery in the Portuguese world. But. Mostly I've focused on the Indian Ocean and the Asian region, the Portuguese Estado de India, the, the Asian part of their empire. So shifting to the Atlantic world uh, had more to do with um, uh, looking at enslavement in Angola and in, um, in Brazil. And in fact, so again, to digress a bit, one of my main focuses as a historian has to do with history of medicine. Uh, And so where that uh, juxtaposes with the history of enslavement, you have people moving uh, ideas and concepts and commodities of medicine through the slave trade with people leaving, say, West Africa or East Africa with ideas about curing and healing and then moving those ideas uh, to places like Brazil uh, or to India, Goa. Uh, and so, there's one of the books that I edited has to do with um, medicine in Angola, written by uh, a, a, a translation of a work written by an 18th century doctor who was working with the enslaved population in Angola. Wow! Wow! So you can see this is pretty far afield yes. from yes, <laughs> from, yes. from what I uh, <laughs> from the present work that I'm that I'm engaged in with the Underground Railroad in in the United States. Right. Right.
2: Wow. So, Tim. I want to back up just a bit, um, and talk about the, particularly like the formations of us becoming scholars, right. And becoming researchers. So, you know, I think that, um, in our profession or just professions broadly, we don't talk enough about moments of insecurity or moments of doubt. Um, so I've just wonder, wondered if you could, um, tell us a moment of self-doubt that you had either as a graduate student or as a faculty member about um, a particular um, um, study that you were engaged in or something like that but then on the flip side um recount a moment that you had great, um, clarity as well as confirmation or, um, reassurances in that you are looking at something that is really necessary for the field.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, think that like many, um, people who are just starting out in their graduate careers, that, that first semester of grad school is always, um, a shock, um, because you realize just the sheer amount of information that you're expected to uh, consider and assimilate uh, in, the, in the course of, of taking multiple classes and perhaps being a teaching assistant on top of that or a grader or, or something. And, and so I think, you know, the first semester of my graduate career uh, left me a bit um, uncertain that this was the path that I really wanted to take. But on the other hand, I'd always been so deeply engaged in history. And I, even from a very early age, uh, my parents were very good about taking me to historic sites in the US. And and I've, I've always really felt this extraordinary need to help uh, other people understand why things in the past matter and, uh, and why they are so important for us to understanding our present. Um, and so uh, another time when I was really... Um, Uncertain about myself is the first time that I really had to stare at, um, you know, multiple pages of Portuguese uh, manuscript documents from the 17th or 16th century and try to make sense of them, and you know, not working in a language that is my first language, working in a language that that I'm I'm trying to understand and learn, and and having real doubts about am I getting these translations right as I'm making them myself, um, but. Where I felt vindicated then later was that um, you know I had Portuguese scholars and and then later students um, tell me that they had uh, had really gained something important and insights from the work that I had produced and and really where it all comes together for me and and where I feel um, the most at home as in my profession and and most comfortable in my profession I think is in the classroom sometimes even teaching on board vessels, uh, where students who have very little maritime experience really begin to understand the importance of these kinds of themes and how important, um, it, to understand the colonial world, to understand colonial empires, to understand the transatlantic slave trade, to understand, uh, how the American, um, uh, experience of 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 uh, gaining freedom through the the War of Independence, the American Revolution, how maritime matters are so important to that, and people um, people have told me that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I'm fairly good at conveying that information, and that's where I I feel uh, where this has all been worthwhile, and that I'm on the right path.
2: Yeah, and to that point, when you said, understand our colonial world and through maritime escapes, you know, this is a fantastic volume, Sail Into Freedom. And you bring together about like nine or 10 um, scholars through um, their essays that they contributed to this volume. Um, Tell me a bit about how this um, came into being.
1: So the book itself grew out of uh, a wonderful opportunity that I had um, here in New Bedford. Uh, there is an organization called the New Bedford Historical Society led by uh, a, a dynamo of a woman named Lee Blake, who um, who focuses mainly on the experience of people of color in New Bedford. Uh, and this would include, um, you know, people of, of African descent uh, who came both as free people and enslaved people to North America. Uh, It includes um, Native American populations that were here prior to Europeans and their descendants. But she came to me with the uh, suggestion that we apply for a national endowment of the humanities grant called landmarks in American history. uh, The purpose of which is to uh, bring teachers from all over the United States, K through 12 teachers uh, to a particular place and have them learn in depth over the course of a week or two the uh, the historical lessons of uh, of an important historical story that is uh, important to that place. And so we we did a, a program, a National Endowment for the Humanities program called "Sailing to Freedom: New Bedford and the Underground Railroad." Uh, and in the course of this, uh, we were successful in our application. We did it three times between 2011 and 2015 and we've been refunded to do it again now that the book is out. Uh, but in the course of doing that, we brought together a number of scholars and speakers who addressed the teachers with um, uh, components of their own scholarship that, that kind of augmented the story and explained why people were escaping by sea and why they were coming to new Bedford. People like, you know, um, uh, Frederick Douglas who comes to new Bedford and makes this place his first home in freedom and, and, hundreds of other people like him. Um, In the course of doing that NEH project, we began to realize a number of things. One is that there was all this disparate scholarship that that wasn't really speaking to one another about this particular theme, maritime escapes. Uh, And second, that the numbers of people who were escaping this way were far higher than most Underground Railroad scholarship acknowledges, and that really people hadn't um, historians of the Underground Railroad had not sufficiently examined this story, this component of of escapes, and so we uh, decided that this would be uh, something that uh, that would be valuable and historiographically important. And so I took it upon myself to organize the volume, uh, largely using. Uh, scholars who had come as presenters to the NEH program that we ran, but also recruiting other people to cover other geographic areas that we hadn't covered in the course of our NEH program. So uh, we got uh, myself and nine others uh, who, um, who were able to cover most of the eastern seaboard of the U.S., um, and uh, I wanted to get people who were at differing stages of their careers uh, some are independent scholars, some are in tenure track jobs in American universities, but uh, all of them are, um, are experts in a particular place uh, along the East Coast, either through which uh, people who were escaping enslavement passed, or from which those escapes originated, or to which those escapes um, were directed uh, to try to find uh, safety in a northern city. Uh, typically, a port city where uh, where they could escape to. So that's pretty much how the book came together.
2: Wow! And just for some grounding for our listeners, um, could you define for us what are or how you and the other scholars define maritime escapes?
1: So when we when we're talking about maritime escapes, um, you know, most of the attention of underground railroad uh, historiography is focused on terrestrial overland escapes. And we wanted to focus on people who were uh, escaping uh, by water, but not just any water. Um, We wanted this to be truly sort of uh, ocean-borne, coastal. So anyone who's fleeing enslavement by long distance waterborne means, using boats to get to larger vessels, maybe stealing a boat from shore, going down a riverway to a port, getting on board a vessel, getting aboard an ocean going vessel uh, on a dock or at a wharf in a, in a Southern port uh, and then fleeing uh, using coastal waterways often, you know, pretty deep water passages hundreds of miles out to sea where people would leave a Southern port and then sail North to uh, New York or Boston or New Bedford um, some kind of, um, of, of ocean uh, transit um, now, we do look some, at some inland waterways. Some people escaped up the Mississippi River, um, but we really were looking at ocean passages as, uh, as means of escape. And that's where most of the numbers are, uh, people fleeing from ports in the south uh, across the ocean to ports in the north.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you know how many enslaved people actually like, sail to freedom?
1: Well, you know, we get this question a lot, and then the question of numbers and quantifying uh, the data, and it's important to recognize that the activity that we are examining is by its very nature um, uh, clandestine. It's hidden because it was illegal. Uh, there were very serious um, consequences for being caught, either assisting or escaping enslavement by water. Uh, and so it didn't leave a lot of records behind. Now, what we can say is that, uh, and where we do get a sense of some of the numbers, is through looking at some of the documentation. And one of the main documentations, uh types of documentation that we use, is uh, runaway slave ads. And so in the United States newspapers uh, from the pre-Civil War period, there are roughly 200,000 known uh, publications of runaway slave ads. Uh, not all of them have been uh, digitized and, and analyzed. But of those 200,000, um, m- many of them are are repeats. So you have the same ad that's uh, that's been published multiple times. But the point is, is that a, an astonishingly high number of them, and I'm not going to hazard a guess at the percentage because they haven't all been studied yet, but um, a very high number of them uh, involve masters who are, um, who are, who are, advertising for the return of their property. And they put in the ad, the suspicion that they have escaped by ship. And so slave owners who are putting in this data, and then you also have uh, advertisements by captains of ships who, uh, who claim in the advert uh, in order to give themselves legal coverage, that they did find a fugitive on board. They did land them in a place like New York or Boston that they had no knowledge of it beforehand, and that they're not therefore responsible for this. But they're informing uh, the owner of the property that their property is now, uh, it, or at least was at last known point, uh, in a place like Boston or New York or New Bedford. So you, so um, t- to come back to your question, there's real, really no way to, with with any kind of certainty, quantify exactly how many people. Uh, fled by sea. But there is a way to say that um, that the numbers are very high. The final point I want to say about this is that almost all escapes from the very far south, from anywhere more than you know 100 miles or so south of a free state, uh, all of the escapes from the deep south are made by water, because it was simply un- impractical to escape over land more than a few days walk from a free state. Um, And so that, that alone sets us up with uh, the idea that a very large proportion of people who are escaping enslavement are doing so by water.
2: Mm. Mm. And to that point, you know, um, waterways were central. During the 18th and 19th century, right. So, could you also talk about that? This method of escape is not, um, you know, not necessarily abnormal or um, what we might think is atypical as a as a um, way to abscond from chattel um, enslavement, slavery. Right.
1: So, um, yeah, the, one of the things that we tend to forget in the first part of the 21st century is just how central. Uh, maritime passages were to the economy, to the society, uh, to the to to communication within the early American Republic, and indeed during colonial times as well. Uh, there were no, or very very few, internal roads. Even into the mid nineteenth century, uh, most travel along uh, in, in the in the main eastern states, and the movement of heavy cargo and the movement of Uh, economic um, uh, valued goods, you know, it's all done by water. And so right up until the time of the Civil War, uh, you have, at any given time, thousands of small vessels at sea, plying the eastern seaboard from north to south, moving goods, goods produced in the south for, uh, for processing in the north, uh, goods produced in the north to uh, help the the economy of the south. Um, and Things are moving back and forth with such frequency that there are thousands upon thousands of coastal cargo and trade vessels always moving back and forth along the eastern seaboard. These would be small sloops or schooners or brigs uh, that were essential to the internal economy of the United States because you didn't have uh, until the uh, until the beginnings of the structure of the um, uh, the railroad system, which mainly existed in the north, uh, you you simply didn't have any means to do that, and so this provided an opportunity for uh, persons of color who were enslaved to get aboard one of these vessels uh, that was making a, a passage from a southern port to a northern port, and and that knowledge was. Absolutely current and and circulated within the enslaved community in the South, people understood very well that that this was a way out. And not only did, did the enslaved population understand this, the owner class understood it too, because they passed uh, laws and ordinances to keep this from happening. They knew that their ports were like a sieve with people escaping all the time. It was a huge loss uh, to their economy, and yet. Uh, to uh, To try to close those ports was unthinkable because the the commerce that they uh, that they transacted was so important to the economy um, i'd like to follow on just for a moment to add something that is also a key prere- prerequisite to this whole story and that 's that the labor in the southern ports on the waterfronts uh, loading and unloading vessels uh, working in warehouses bringing Uh, Cargo down river systems from plantations to the ports for loading on vessels, Uh, ferry operators, fishermen, uh, people uh, gathering oysters and doing all kinds of waterfront work. It was all enslaved labor in the South, almost universally. And therefore, the people who are working along these waterfronts are gathering key strategic information that then they can use to allow themselves The opportunity to escape. So, the kinds of information gathering, the understanding of uh, currents and tides, knowing how to operate small vessels, knowing the schedules of ships sailing, knowing that they have to go out with the tide and the timing of that to get aboard a vessel as a stowaway, all of this is key, strategic, essential information that you only get through working in the maritime trades. Uh, Landlubbers who are just a few miles inland. Uh, who, who, you know, didn't have the opportunity of understanding the rhythm of the C's uh, did not have the essential knowledge to make those kinds of escapes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Wow. That is such a critical point that enslaved people who were working in ports, that they developed this embodied knowledge that could foster and actually help them as a strategy to figure out ways to... Escape via uh, maritime when they feel they have found the right time to actually do so. That is actually a really great point, Timothy.
1: It's essential to understanding how this all worked because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, unlike unlike the way we tend to perceive of the Underground Railroad. In which there are station masters and people who are conductors and uh, networks of people helping fugitives who are fleeing by land, who are only moving maybe, you know, a few miles every night from one hidden location to another. Uh, and most of that network functioned in the North already to get fugitives uh, away from people who would re-enslave them and drag them back to, to slavery the way the maritime system worked is quite different um it usually relied on the the would-be fugitives own devices their own knowledge their own skills their own um capacities for making decisions that will allow them to escape to freedom so many of these escapes are done as um uh, impulsive acts uh with very little help from uh persons on shore to be sure uh, there were uh, overseas, uh, or rather, seaborne escapes that that happened with planning and with help. But a lot, an, in, an enormous number of these escapes that we've been able to document, are done by people acting on their own initiative and acting with only their own uh, knowledge and resources. And that maritime knowledge was essential to making it uh, happen successfully.
2: I'm wondering if we can account for gender um, to figure out um, who took advantage of this maritime escape. Is I know it's difficult to locate the precise numbers, but could you hypothesize, have scholars hypothesize um, um, when it comes to gender, who yeah. took advantage of this?
1: Well, it seems to be that the overwhelming majority of escapees by water were male, uh, for reasons that we can fairly readily understand. Most waterfront um, wharf and and dockage work is done by men. Uh, most of the watermen who are operating vessels are, are men. Now, we do know of uh, uh, a number of women who do escape, um, sometimes as part of families. Uh, they and, and usually uh, when there is some sort of agreement made with a vessel captain or crew to get uh, more than one or two um, fugitives on board, the uh, the freedom seekers might contract with a captain to pay a fee to take them out of a southern port, or they might, uh, and this is a case where you have clear pre-planning and there is, there is a, an organized effort to do it. It isn't a, a spontaneous act. Uh, but in those cases, uh, sometimes families would escape, uh, as a group, uh, a few, a few people. Um, there were some known schooner captains who operated packet vessels that had a regular route that they ran, uh, from Southern states to Northern states. And there are a couple of them that, uh, William still writes about in his book about the underground railroad. He operated out of Philadelphia, as a, uh, as a well-known, uh, person who assisted with escapes. And he mentions a couple of different schooner captains who regularly would deliver people to him, uh, and sometimes significant groups, a dozen or dozen people or so. Um, and in those cases, women would escape, but your, 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 uh, instances where it's one lone person acting often, uh, with very little planning and just opportunistically, that person is almost certainly going to be a male slave uh, who, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. makes their bid for freedom.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, um, a little while ago you mentioned that, um, you know, enslaved owners knew that this was happening and they were trying to prevent um, enslaved people from using the maritime system and that, to undergo this particular escape is risky right and um, one of the authors of this um, volume actually pointed to that that um, in one of the states it was a potential capital crime and which blew my mind so I don't know if you could you know talk a little bit more about that or just broadly um, help us think about, the level of risk that maritime escape um, was, right? And um, was it dangerous than any other form of escape that enslaved people um, consider?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question and a a very important one. Uh, One thing to consider is that the law did not apply equally to uh, persons of color who were enslaved to persons of color who are free uh, and to, uh, to free men who were, who were white uh, and women. So uh, in several states, uh, it was a capital crime to assist a fugitive to escape, uh, particularly for, uh, and, and, and where the law fell the hardest were, was on uh, free black people who were assisting slaves to escape. And that's partly because they're the most vulnerable in any uh, slaveholding society, uh, a free black person has very few protections under the law. So there were free black sailors, for example, that were hung for assisting fugitive slaves to escape uh, in the South. Uh, we're speaking specifically here about North Carolina, and the author uh, who I'm referring to who is a contributor to the book is David Soselsky, who writes about North Carolina in his chapter of the book, which is the third chapter. Um, but But beyond that, one of the things that enslaved people risked um, you know, as a commodity, these people were extraordinarily valuable, and they understood something about their value. Um, mm-hmm. What that means is that they often themselves, if they were property, they wouldn't necessarily be executed for trying to escape. Instead, what they risked was being sold uh, to a part of the southern U.S. where uh, where working as a slave was a, was in itself a death sentence. So to be sold to areas where the labor was uh, was so brutal and so harsh that few people survived it for more than a few seasons, uh, and that was a, a a punishment and a and a threat that uh, that the people who owned enslaved humans would hold over their head to say, look, if you if you insist in 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 this uh, these attempts to get away, I'm going to. Um, make your life far worse than it is now. So, um, you know, one of the one of the things that I came to realize in the course of putting the material together for this book is that uh, a lot of enslaved persons, particularly if they worked in maritime trades, had an enormous amount of autonomy in their labor because if they were uh, part of a crew that went out on a fishing vessel uh, and the crew was entirely and composed of enslaved people. Um, their day-to-day work was done often without uh, the vigilance of a slave master or owner. Um, if they were a ferryman or uh, you know, worked in many of the maritime trades, uh, they weren't constantly being uh, overseen by, uh, by, by someone who uh, was answerable to their owner. Instead, they had lives that allowed them uh, a fair amount of freedom, if you will, and uh, and also the opportunity to earn money uh, doing side jobs that might then lead, at least in the early part of the 19th century, that might allow them to purchase their freedom. So uh, the threat of being sold uh, to the plantations of the Far South, was, uh, of the Deep South, was, was a very real threat. And, uh, and this is something that was uh, at risk if, if one made an escape attempt and then was caught and brought back to enslavement.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm.
2: I know you mentioned this before, but I just want to um, highlight this. Um, what were some of the uh, typical states that um, enslaved people uh, went to when they, <clears throat> excuse me, went through the waterfront um, um, what were some of the... Um, some of the destinations? The yeah. Yeah. What were some of the de- destinations? Sure. To just um, once again, to um, think about geographic locations and um, and all of that. Right.
1: So um, many of the northern ports in, in free states had longstanding relationships, uh, commercial relationships with southern ports, and they were exchanging... You know, things like uh, uh, timber and, uh, and and cotton and, uh, and uh, molasses and things that were being sent north for processing or for being turned into ships. And so there's constantly traffic going back and forth. Um, some of the main places that uh, enslaved people would try to get to would be uh, New York City, which was an important transit point, it wasn't the safest place for a, a person who was a freedom seeker. Uh, Trying to get away from enslavement because there were bounty hunters always on the lookout for people who looked like they might be fugitives Uh, but if you could get to Connecticut or Massachusetts um, uh, or uh, parts of um, uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, New Jersey uh, these were places that uh, you could then transit through to try to get to a safer place uh, going inland to upstate New York, uh, crossing the border into Canada. Uh, but New Bedford and Boston were places where large communities of uh, former enslaved people, self-emancipated people, uh, gathered because they were relatively safe, because of the, uh, the important abolitionist communities that operated in those, uh, in those cities. Uh, both people of color and uh, and 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 uh, white abolitionists in Boston and in New Bedford, uh, who would do uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of work, not only to welcome and find jobs for uh, fugitives, but also um, uh, to protect them if slave catchers came to their to their communities. Uh, the abolitionist community in New Bedford, for example prided itself that no one had ever been taken back to slavery once they had uh, achieved uh, freedom in New Bedford. Um, I should also point out that one of the reasons why New Bedford became a um, uh, a destination is that um, the whaling industry uh, provided a number of opportunities for fugitive slaves. One, uh, it was largely in the hands of Quakers, who by the mid-19th century were uh, were strongly anti-slavery. Uh, and the whaling industry provided uh, um, labor. If you were a male who had some uh, sea experience, or even if you didn't, you could sign on to a whaling voyage that typically lasted two to three years, uh, and you could earn some money, and by the time you got back, the heat would be off uh, in terms of someone trying to find you and bring you back into uh, enslavement. Uh, And so the community of New Bedford had this reputation for being a particularly uh, viable place to settle, so much so that it became known as the Fugitives' Gibraltar uh, for uh, for keeping uh, the, the the fugitive population safe. Mm. You know, in the past
2: couple of years, I would say five to ten years, um, there have been a lot of. Um, media attention or media narratives of round or about the underground railroad. Right. Um, one that, you know, debuted last weekend, um, um, uh, uh, right. And then a name that has, gotten a lot of attention, rightfully so, right, is Harriet Tubman, Tubman, and, you know, known as the conductor or one of the conductors of the Underground Railroad. I wonder, and as I was reading this volume, I wondered if there was sort of a similar type of position or, you know, these positions are, (laughs) scholars are naming um, these positions, right? But um, I wonder if to think about this particular form of escape maritime escape are there any formerly enslaved people that actually assisted um slaves that w- we should know about and try to think about really thinking about this as a robust important um method of um escaping
1: yeah i, I i've thought a, a bit about this and um the short answer is, you know, almost certainly there were former uh, slaves who had successfully escaped, who then used their experience to try to help others to escape, almost certainly, but but rarely documented. Uh, and one of the reasons that it isn't documented is, of course, because it was a crime uh, and uh, and people didn't want to be punished for, for what they were doing. So they didn't say much about it. And often until years and years later, a lot of the narratives that are published that we that we used in the book for some of our key information about how all of this worked. Those narratives are not published until, in some cases, until after the Civil War. Um, and so, um, but but some circumstances under which uh, self-emancipated people might have helped others to escape might have been in terms of getting messages and correspondence about how to achieve freedom through maritime means. Uh, they, they could have sent messages through third parties to some of their family or loved ones uh, still in, in bondage in the South. Um, they uh, and, and of course, because literacy was a problem, they often had to do this uh, verbally or uh, through intermediaries that could have been uh, free black sailors, for example, which is why they were often in trouble in the South. Uh, free black sailors in particular, especially if they're serving on northern ships, um Increasingly during the 19th century, Southern uh, white uh, people of the owner class uh, tried to control free black sailors by insisting that they stay aboard their vessels whenever in port in the South, or sometimes even incarcerating them um, uh, with a bond uh, so that they wouldn't interact with the enslaved black population in the South. Because they were certain that free black sailors were encouraging uh enslaved black uh, wharf workers and waterfront workers to escape. And they were probably right in those suspicions. So um, another uh, thing that happened is that um, some of the people who achieve freedom by sea end up serving in northern regiments, uh, like the 54th Massachusetts, which recruited in New Bedford and in Boston and other places. And we have a number of uh, instances where we know that soldiers who fought against slavery in the Civil War were, in fact, uh, fugitives who had, who had achieved freedom by, by sea. One of those is uh, uh, William Carney, who lived in New Bedford, uh, had escaped from, um, I believe it's North Carolina, I might be wrong about that. Uh, and he ends up uh, being the first African American soldier to earn the Medal of Honor uh, ever uh, in the United States for his um, for his acts of valor at Fort Wagner in um, in 1863. So the um, the you know the, the the legacy is enormous and um, and we want these stories to become better known as much as we want to change the way people think about how the Underground Railroad functioned and to think about it as this land and sea based uh, effort that was going on simultaneously.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to that point that you want to reconceptualize the underground railroad as both land and sea, um, escape routes. Um, I'm struck by the way that you have thought about, um, maritime escapes all the way back to, um, when you receive the NEH um, grant to do this, right, and you titled the the seminar uh, "Sailing to Freedom: Maritime Escapes and the Underground Railroad." Well, new, right, new, and I think
1: New Bedford and the Underground Railroad. Yes,
2: I'm sorry, New New Bedford and the Underground Railroad, and um, I think there's work there with the conjunction and um, and. I think about the the volume, right, and the subtitle here: maritime dimensions of the underground railroad, right. So, I, in thinking about conceptualizing the field and what the uh, contributors have done, I'm thinking about um, how should we, as researchers, as scholars, as educators, and just listeners, think about maritime escapes, right? Should we think about it as a subfield um, within Underground Railroad studies, or um, should we think of it as its own separate field, um, distinct but um, important to the Underground Railroad studies? I know you wrote in your uh, contribution the historiography of Underground Railroad studies, but in terms of conceptualizing it, what do you have to, how are you thinking about yeah. it? I,
1: I think from my perspective as a scholar and as one who has, you know, recently completed editing this volume, I, I see the maritime uh, side of the Underground Rail- Railroad as being squarely within uh, the field of uh, Underground Railroad studies. That is to say, the maritime dimension is a, is a distinct part of the main story uh, and I don't see it as separate from um, the underground railroad story because I think the objectives were the same. Um, you know the the uh, it had people in the inland part of the United States had this opportunity, they certainly would have taken advantage of it to escape, but they didn't and um and so consequently, I, I think this has to be seen as an effort that is alongside the terrestrial overland escape methods. Um, but being you know equally important, because the numbers that uh, we've uncovered are are really significant and really uh, very very uh, large numbers of people and the idea that that it simply was not practical to escape overland from anywhere further than just a few days away from a, a free state, uh, it was the chances of being caught of being picked up as a fugitive of being... Intercepted by a, uh, a slave patrol, made overland escape very, very difficult for, for long distances, and so most of the um, most of the terrestrial escapes happen quite close to free states. Whereas, if we think about the maritime side of the Underground Railroad, you could avoid a lot of that, um, a lot of the chance of being captured en route to uh to escape if you were aboard a vessel a hundred or so miles offshore where there are no slave patrols where your your ship is generally speaking not going to be stopped uh the only place where you might be checked is going in and out of a port but typically slaves were very savvy about this they they had the maritime knowledge to know when when a vessel's next port of call was going to be a free state uh, they often would try to get aboard those vessels because they knew that their chances of escape were much, much higher. So um, so to get back to your question, uh, I feel like that this is sort of the understudied uh, half of the Underground Railroad story that really needs uh, to be fully appreciated if you're going to have a comprehensive understanding of what the Underground Railroad was and how it functioned. That's not to say that, that people who did manage to escape to a free northern port by ship didn't engage with underground railroad networks. They did. Uh, so when they got to Philadelphia or New York or, or some of the other cities where they were really at risk of being re-enslaved, they relied on underground railroad conductors to get them to places where they were less likely to be, uh, to be recaptured. But, um, but that initial jump from slavery to freedom if done by water was a much more certain path to freedom than over land.
2: Mm -hmm. And in the effort to highlight this understudied dimension of the underground railroad, you served as the editor and the visionary and, and the, the person who would shepherd this, um, this volume. So tell me a little bit about, um, what was your experience like being editor of this volume and um, how did you structure this volume?
1: Um, well, you know, a lot of people warned me about becoming an editor of a, um, of a, of a collected volume. And in fact, the the press wondered when I initially pitched this topic and the press was very excited about it. They They really liked the idea and the topic and they were very supportive right from the beginning. But they said, um, you know, why not make this a monograph and, and write it yourself rather than um, then have the uh, the challenge of of coordinating a lot of different authors? And I said, well, uh, first of all, I don't have the the expertise to cover all of these geographic areas myself, and and second, there are a lot of other voices that I've come to know through my experience as being the director of this NEH program that that I'd like to give all these folks an opportunity to really showcase uh, the a scholarship that they've been working on for a long time. So I organized the, um, the volume geographically from North to South, uh, sorry, from South to North, I beg your pardon. Uh, from, from South Carolina, beginning in South Carolina, uh, and then following right up the Eastern seaboard coast with chapters that focus on North Carolina and Virginia and, and Maryland. Uh, and then one on New York city, one in Connecticut, uh, and one on, um, Two that focus on Massachusetts, uh, one specifically on New Bedford, and one more generally on uh, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, the Cape and Islands, and uh, in New Bedford. And um, uh, and then the final chapter, uh, which I was really happy to uh, to include, talks about new research opportunities through digital media and digital libraries, online archives that are that are working on gathering uh, and digitizing. And making searchable all of these uh, tens of thousands of uh, runaway slave advertisements that exist in early American newspapers. So uh, we finish up the book with kind of a call for new and further research. And of course, what everyone hopes who engages in a, in a project like this, you hope that you're going to have spin-off projects that that will take your ideas and your scholarship even further and in, in into greater detail. So, you know. We're already aware that there are places that the book uh, wasn't able to cover as well and and we hope that other scholars will step up and and uh, and and make a richer picture from the one that we've that we've provided as a kind of starting point.
2: Yeah, it really is a great starting point and it's fantastic and it's really cut an edge and I want everyone to read it who um, listens to, this interview because this is really rich really rich and as you um rightfully acknowledge um throughout the the, the book and um in this interview is that this is really study, but if you look back at some of um some of how the enslaved people that we have come to know, they escape using waterways, right? I think Harry uh, Jacob is one that came to mind and, um, in, in reading this as well. So this is fantastic um, work. And I thank you so much for doing this. And actually, you know, um, you know, pushing back uh, to the other and say like, no, like this is a collaborative effort, and I'm not the only one um, who is interested in this work as well as doing this work. So it's really great.
1: Well, I, I'm glad that you found it so rewarding to read and and that it has sparked your imagination about ways to uh, maybe uh, take this story and, and disseminate it and uh, and make it uh, a, a a a real. Uh, integral part of the Underground Railroad story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, before we go, do you mind telling us what you're working on next?
1: <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. In fact, I'm I'm really excited about a project that um that is related in many ways to the material that uh, is in the the present volume that we're discussing. So, as you know, I live in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and I've I've sailed out of here, and I've been very interested in. The intersection of, uh, of the uh, Underground Railroad and the whaling industry. Uh, but there's another really important uh, component of this. New Bedford holds easily half, if not more than half, of the known whaling logbook records uh, for Yankee whalers, American whalers, going back to the 18th century. And in those logbooks, you have very detailed data from every day of a voyage on a whaling uh, voyage that could last uh, you know two, three years, four years, going to some of the most remote places on the planet, you have weather data from every daily log entry. And so I've teamed up with a uh, with a ocean climatologist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and we are systematically going through log books and recording weather data, which then um, my partners at Woods Hole are, Analyzing and and using that to model uh, climate change um, uh, information and making models about how weather changes from the 18th century to the um, to the 20th. And because I also have uh, a lot of experience in Portuguese and Dutch colonial archives, we're using that uh, those logbooks from Dutch and. Like East India Company records, Dutch VOC records, Portuguese records going to Asia, we're pushing back the climate picture uh, another 200 years to the set, uh, 16th century to gather weather data from those logbooks. So, um, it, you know, <laughs> it's once once you get into the maritime realm of documentation and the available data in archives, you can do all kinds of fascinating stuff with it. Uh, and uh, and so I'm very excited to work on this climate problem uh, with, uh, with historical documentation that is unique to the maritime fields.
2: Wow. Once again, another innovative project and important project. This sounds fascinating. Timothy really does.
1: Well, I'll I'll send you a couple of links. We've actually got some nice media coverage of what we've been doing, uh, in the last couple of years. And, uh, I'm happy to share that with you.
2: Oh, please, please do.
1: My, My partner at Woods Hole is called Caroline Umenhofer. And, uh, She's a great ocean scientist, and, uh, and uh, we've just been doing uh, a lot of work that we are, we're really proud of and really excited about.
2: Mm. Wow. Well, t- Timothy, I want to thank you so much for um, being in conversation with me.
1: I'm, I'm so happy that you, uh, that you found your way to my, uh, to my recent book, and, uh, and thank you so much for, for having me on your show.
2: Thank you. So this is Timothy. Timothy is the editor of Sailing to Freedom, Maritime Dimensions of the Underground Railroad. And our listeners who wish to order the book may use the promo code MAS022, which is good for 30% off the cover price of the book and free shipping when purchased through the University of Massachusetts press website. Timothy, thanks again. I really enjoyed it and
1: have a good afternoon. You too, Nkasi. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.